lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. And we are back at it again here on a Thursday. Greetings. Welcome to the Steve Dace Show here on Blaze TV radio and podcast. That would be me. Totters and Aaron McIntyre, they're here with me as well, as are all of you at 888-900-3393. That's 888-900-3393. Steve at stevedace.com. That's how you can email the program, D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show over on Parlor at Steve Dace. Check out our new YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Steve Dace, where you can get free samples, videos of this show that you can look at yourself, and then hopefully you'll share with others. Also coming up on December the 15th, my next book, the novella sequel to A Nefarious Plot. A Nefarious Carol is dropping nationwide. You can get your pre-order at Amazon.com right now, coming your way on December the 15th. Go to Amazon.com, get your pre-order in. My kids are expecting a good Christmas this year, and frankly, that's up to you. So I I expect you to stand and deliver. I did my part, right? Now it's time, frankly, ladies and gentlemen, for you to do yours. How was that for a pitch? Was that good? I'm good. You know, I'm all about the coattails, baby. Was that that okay? Just keep pitching. I mean, because the consultants are telling me that maybe I should sell it more rather than demanding more. But I kind of feel like, you know, we should just put it on people and just tell them, buy it. We should just do that. This is kind of old dog, new tricks territory. I agree. I mean, yeah. But when you sell, you demand. I mean, this is not a, even a book thing, really. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, and, and look how far being a contrarian has got me so far. All right. So uh, we mentioned it is the sequel uh, to uh, my 2016 book, A Nefarious Plot. Starting next week, we're going to spend several Theology Thursdays leading up to the release of my next book, A Nefarious Carol, the sequel. We are going to revisit A Nefarious Plot for Theology Thursday starting next week. We're going to go back through it again. There's a pit in my stomach already. Yeah, I know. When I I came in this morning and and said we were going to do this, dude, there was a a Mike Pence-level forlorn look on your face, okay? Like... I don't know if I want to go down that rabbit hole again. again. Yeah. We're going to go through it four years later, how much of it turned out to be prophetic and you know how much of it was, hey, it was fun while it lasted. We're going to apply it to what's going on in the culture today and set the stage for the sequel when it uh, drops on December the 15th. So we're going to start that as an ongoing series on Theology Thursday next week. I'm giving you one week warning. I know some of you wanted to to purchase this over the last few months, and they were out at Amazon.com. I just checked with our publisher. Uh, they've got copies there now. They have been refurbished. So you can go to Amazon.com right now. If you don't have a copy of A Nefarious Plot, get your copy right now so that you can go through this book with us each week here for Theology Thursday on the show. What's that book about? It's about us, and it's about what hell tried to do to us and thinks it was successful at doing so todd what do you think are you looking forward to going through this again oh i i definitely as you know i've read the book like what five or six times I know you because have. i have that no yeah. it just gets richer and richer and the more you go through 
because of the times we're living in. Now, is this kind of a Catholic evangelical thing where Aaron's like, I really don't want to do that, go into that realm again. And the Catholic guy's like, yeah, man, let's do another exorcism. Let's do it again. Or is it just, Aaron, are you just that creeped out by it? See, Todd thinks that wine, if you let it sit around for, for long enough, it becomes richer and richer. Actually, it's turning into vinegar, but that's his, you know. But Todd his, likes vinegar. Yes, so I like exactly. that. There you go. Oh, by the way. That movie, if you didn't know, we're turning that into a motion picture uh, as we speak. That is going on as we speak. So it's a perfect time to go through it again and reset it again, leading up to the unveiling of the sequel on December the 15th and with the production for the film version underway. We're going to start that next week on the show. All right, coming up today on the show for Theology Thursday, we're going to revisit a topic that I am getting a slew of questions about. Um. And it's, it's got various applications and tentacles, but they're all asking me the same question. And a buddy of mine uh, just got arrested out of Moscow, Idaho, for daring to be outside without a mask, even though he's got a medical permission not to wear one uh, because of breathing difficulty. And should he just do whatever the law says? When do we say no? We're going to revisit a presentation I gave earlier this year on Romans 13. It's only about 15 minutes. We're going to play it again for you on this show, and then we'll react to it. That's coming up in Theology Thursday a little bit later on. Three non-political questions coming your way. Aaron, this is me warning you to be ready. I did it this time. Oh, so you're ready right now. I am, yeah. Wow, okay. And then the one and only Adam Carolla is going to join us at the bottom of the hour uh, perhaps the number one podcaster on planet Earth, uh, a unique talent. When you can go from partnering with Dr. Drew to our old Salem uh, cohort, Dennis Prager, you are a man of wide-ranging views and talents. I think that's a apropos description of Mr. Corolla, don't you? Oh, absolutely. He will join us about the number one at the box office, the number one documentary, political documentary last year. It is out on demand right now, and he's going to tell us about it. That's coming up at the bottom of the hour. But before we get to all of that, here's Aaron's rundown of what happened while we were away. What happened while we were away brought to you by another night of peaceful protests. those of you listening, what we're watching is a peaceful protest which took place in Moscow, Idaho last night after that city's mayor extended a mask mandate into January along with social distancing guidelines and other regulations for coronavirus. Members of the community, primarily made up of congregants of Christ Church, pastored by Doug Wilson, showed up at City Hall last night to sing hymns without masks. Multiple people were arrested. What a juxtaposition that is compared with what happened in the rest of the country. Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron announced the grand jury verdict in the case of the officer-involved shooting of 26-year-old Louisville resident Breonna Taylor back in March. Contrary to the public narrative presented, the grand jury found that the officers who were serving a warrant at Taylor's address 
did indeed announce their presence as they were executing said search warrant. After they announced their presence, Taylor's boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, was the one to open fire first, prompting the officers to do the same. The grand jury indicted Officer Brett Hankinson on three counts of wanton endangerment for endangering the couple's neighbors with his shots, but returned no guilty verdicts for Taylor's death amongst the officers involved. Attorney General Cameron had this to say after announcing the verdict. I know that not everyone will be satisfied with the charges we've reported today. Every person has an idea of what they think justice is. My role as special prosecutor in this case is to set aside everything in pursuit of the truth. My job is to present the facts to the grand jury, and the grand jury then applies those facts to the law. If we simply act on emotion or outrage, there is no justice. Mob justice is not justice. Justice sought by violence is not justice. MSNBC, your thoughts? Let me say this as a black woman. He does not speak for black folks. He's skin folk, but he is not kin folk. Naturally, that kicked off another night of rioting across the country. Shortly after the news broke, video surfaced from Louisville of a U-Haul truck arriving in the downtown area full of Antifa and Black Lives Matter propaganda, signs and shields, and all hell broke loose from there. Later in the evening, two Louisville police officers were shot in the riots. WTVD-TV tweets, Louisville officer shot, but unclear if tied to protests. Reuters tweets, demonstrations in Louisville wore on past nightfall in defiance of a 9 p.m. curfew and remained mostly peaceful until several gunshots rang out in the midst of a skirmish between protesters and heavily armed police. In Portland, rioters lobbed a Molotov cocktail at police officers. In Los Angeles, Black Lives Matter terrorists abused a black police officer standing guard. In Seattle, Black Lives Matter terrorists beat a cop with a metal bat. In St. Pete, Florida, Black Lives Matter terrorists went back to their tried and true trick of accosting restaurant patrons. And to cap it all off, CNN contributor Sophia Nelson tweets regarding Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron, Uncle Tom, stop and fetch Negro, the end. Moving on, and in coronavirus news, Dr. Anthony Fauci was grilled by Senator Rand Paul on his record on mitigation strategies for the virus. Do you have any second thoughts about your mitigation recommendations, considering the evidence that despite all of the things we've done in the U.S., our death rate is essentially worse than Sweden, equivalent to the less developed world that is unable to do any of the things that you've been promoting. You've been a big fan of Cuomo and the shutdown in New York. You've lauded New York for their policy. New York had the highest death rate in the world. How could we possibly be jumping up and down and saying, oh, Governor Cuomo did a great job. He had the worst death rate in the world. No, you misconstrued that, Senator. And you've done that repetitively in the past. Or they've developed enough community immunity that they're no longer having the pandemic because they have enough immunity in New York City to actually stop. I challenge that, uh, Senator. I'm afraid. afraid uh, Please, sir, I would like to be able to do this because this happens with Senator Rand all the time. Later on in the day at a White House press conference, Dr. Scott Atlas laid waste to the panic porn stars in the media. Yes, this clip is a little long, but it's worth it. Dr. Redfield today said that more than 90% of the population remains susceptible to coronavirus. Do you agree with that assessment? 
Yeah, I think that Dr. Redfield uh, misstated something there. And so the re last time. And I'm going to answer your question if you let me finish. The reality is that according to the papers from Sweden, Singapore, and elsewhere, there is cross immunity, highly likely, from other infections, and there is also T cell immunity. And the combination of those makes the antibodies a small fraction of the people that have immunity. So the answer is no, it is not 90% of people that are susceptible to the infection. So I guess Americans hear one thing from the CDC director and another thing from you. Who are we to, to believe? You're supposed to believe the science, and I'm telling you the science. In other news, President Trump announced the Born Alive executive order, which would guarantee medical treatment to infants who survive abortion. A bombshell dropped yesterday in the ongoing saga of Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, and his dealings with Ukraine and Russia. It was from a Republican investigation into fraud and corruption by the Bidens that the younger Biden received a $3.5 million wire transfer from Russian oligarch and Putin stooge Elena Baterina. And Finally, South Dakota just keeps looking better and better and better and better. Christy Nome, governor of South Dakota. This is how we do social distancing in our state. That was great. Less COVID, more hunting. And that's what happened while we were away. Aaron's montage brought to you by Home Title Lock. So what does COVID-19 have to do with losing your home? It turns out it might be a lot. Uh, the FBI says that cybercrime has gone up 75% since we locked everybody down in their homes and made everybody do everything online. And it gets worse because that's also where the legal titles to a lot of our homes are kept these days. And the cyber thieves know this and they've got a new crime for it. It's called Home Title Theft and it's everywhere. Cyber criminals forge your signature on a quick claim deed. Then they refile as the new owner of your home. You're off the title and they can destroy you by taking out loans against your home steal your cash or equity stick you with the payments and you may, may not even find out about it until you get a foreclosure notice in the mail one day but home title lock they will protect your home's legal title uh your most valuable asset they will put a virtual barrier around it and the instant they detect any tampering whatsoever they will mobilize to shut it down but first things first go to hometitlelock.com and register your address to see if you're already a victim at HomeTitleLock.com. And then while you're there, use the promo code Steve for 30 free days of protection with the promo code Steve at HomeTitleLock.com. Coming up in the overtime today, we have some very interesting voter registration numbers we're going to share with you. You don't want to miss it. BlazeTV.com slash Dace. BlazeTV dot com slash dace if that's where you can go to get a discounted subscription to blaze tv so that you don't miss it uh that's also where you can go if you are a blaze tv subscriber it will be posted there after it's recorded posted there for you to watch later on demand at blaze tv.com slash dace and there was another poll out today that's just complete and total garbage i was looking at it we were talking about it before we went on the air uh, the new york times which uh, and siena college their forecast had Hillary with 99% odds of winning in 2016, by the way. Uh, they have a poll out today with Trump at 36%. Folks, there's no possible way that will happen. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. They've yeah. been nailing this whole 1619 project thing this week. Yeah. So are you sure? I hear you. I hear you. Folks, in, in a two-way race, a sitting president isn't getting 36% of the vote. All right. In 1992... Ross Perot got a historic share of the vote as a third-party candidate, 19%. All right? And George Herbert Walker Bush still got 37% of the electorate with Ross Perot as a third-party candidate getting 19. Okay? A sitting president. Oh, by the way, 
Donald Trump is polling better with Republicans in this election, his his party, than George H.W. Bush was in 1992. Okay, that's one of the reasons Ross Perot got 19%. A good portion of that was George H.W. Bush's base. I remember, or I remember working college Republicans in that election and door knocking and everything else. <laughs> a sitting president isn't getting 36% of his own, of, 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 of 36% of the vote in a two-way race. If, you, if that were possible, he'd have faced a primary. He'd be out of office. You'd be like Jimmy Carter up against uh, you know Ted Kennedy in 1980. George Herbert Walker Bush, who got primaried by Pat Buchanan in 1992. Presidents in power who are that unpopular get primaried, guys. Okay? He's not getting 36% of the vote. Come on. Just trash. I mean, just trash. It's just not even, it's just not even bad. It's malfeasance. Let's get into the rest of what is an Aaron's montage today. And I have to tell you, I know the community of Moscow, Idaho very well. I was just there a couple of years ago speaking at that uh, Christian university, St. Andrews College. One of the individuals in uh, that was videotaped there, I know him. Uh, his name is Gabe Wrench. He has a really cool politics, culture, political podcast, by the way. It's called Cross Politics. You should check it out sometime. That's what it's called, Cross Politics. I've been on there before. Um, I'm, If anything, I got to tell you folks over there in Moscow, I, you're slipping. I'm kind of surprised it took you all until middle of <laughs> late September to pull that. Okay. But um, the numbers in Idaho, COVID-19 doesn't exist in Idaho. There's no, there's no point to masks, no point to lockdowns and social distancing. That's just all about power. And they were absolutely right to defy that. And I, I hope you got a good look at the police officers that arrested them. We're not in favor of promoting fake police brutality narratives on this show. We waited to see what the facts were in the Breonna Taylor case. It certainly, given the narrative we were told at the time back in March, that certainly didn't look like a justifiable shooting, did it? Right. No. But then the grand jury took a look at it, found out that the search warrant they were given was not no knock, um, found out that, um, uh, that the boyfriend was a drug dealer, I mean, we got a lot of facts out of this process we didn't know back in March when we just got the video of them barging in and, and shooting her, right? We usually do. It's funny how that one proverb about one man's story seems true until you hear the other side comes true. So we're not in favor of fake police brutality narratives, nor, however, do we believe that because someone's wearing a badge, they are immune to what is happening in the culture around them or their internal sin mechanism suddenly just poofs and goes away. We don't believe that either. Total depravity. What's the first word of total depravity? What's the first Some. word? To total. Total. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Mostly people I don't like. The people I don't agree with depravity. That's what it is. No. Total. And by the way, if you look up the word total um, in the original Greek, although I don't believe that was the language that Calvin wrote it in. Uh, but if you look it up in the original Greek, uh, the word total is uh, um, total. That's what it means. Total. Okay. Total means total. And just putting on a badge doesn't mean you are now absolved that's not what it means if anything you're probably more tempted to succumb given the power that has now been granted to you right right and so 
get a good look at those cops arresting people for singing hymns outside on an early fall night in Idaho. And realize that's how tyranny happens in a country, folks. You can have you can have a governor, a president, a king, a prime minister. He can be a wannabe tyrant all he wants. But he can't carry out his edicts on his own. It requires infrastructure. It requires somebody to say, well, it's my job. Or if you want another more brazen example, it requires somebody to say, don't look at me, man. I'm just following orders. See, that's always where the tyranny happens. The mayor of Moscow, Idaho, can be every kind of fiend he wants to be. But he was not there arresting those people, was he? No. No. No, they weren't. Who was who was doing that? The police. The police were. So who are the real tyrants here? Yes. Yes. See, that's how it works. It requires infrastructure. Someone has to be willing to carry that out. Someone has to be willing to say, yeah, I'll do that job. I need the money. And this, the Supreme Court could issue all the Dred Scott opinions in the 19th century at once. If there aren't people in individual states and communities willing to carry out such a heinous opinion as the law, it's, it's just a heinous opinion. It's a blog, right? Yes. It only has the force of law. What does force of law mean? means there's force behind it that's what it means it only has the force of law when it has force it only has the force of law when it has force moscow idaho is a very small community by the way guarantee those cops probably know almost every single person that they arrested. Probably on a first name basis. Like that scene in Tommy Boy. Mer, 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 or Merle, Tom, you were there, right? Okay. Where he just recognizes people in the crowd. Those cops know who these people are. They know they're not threats. They know this is bunk. But they did it anyway. They did it anyway. That's the lesson here. The lesson isn't that a mayor is drunk on power and panic porn. We already learned those lessons, right? We, we know those. Those aren't the lessons. That's not the lesson to learn here. The lesson to learn here is that your neighbor there wearing the uniform and the badge with the gun was willing to earn a check carrying out this foolishness, this tomfoolery, and arrest his own neighbor for it for singing hymns in Idaho while a U-Haul truck that just happened to be in the neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky pulls up with just spontaneous spontaneous signage, man. I just, 
I don't know where these signs came from. I mean, this U-Haul truck was here. We opened it up, and lo and behold, specified political messages in favor of the narrative that we have at this particular moment just happened to be conjured and there, and we decided, what the heck, let's just take advantage of it, right? And it's really disappointing at this point that cops knowing what they obviously know don't understand that you know what yeah we have to pick sides too the juxtaposition of almost the exact same time that they are carrying out those barney fife arrests their brothers in louisville kentucky are getting shot and firebombed and hit in the head with baseball bats i know i know now we've got your back on that front do you have ours that's a great question that's the question right there that's the question right there you nailed it Anthony Fauci, for the 10,000th time, is either the biggest fraud in American political history or one of our worst fiends. And what he said, I don't think you this clip made Aaron's montage. I mean, Aaron could have done his entire montage on that exchange yesterday between Rand Paul and Anthony Fauci, frankly. I decided we had heard too much of Fauci. So. And I'm, I'm glad you made that decision. And there were there was a, a lot of other breaking news for us to get to. Like, I probably don't have, even have time now to touch on this Hunter Biden story. Okay? But... Um, Anthony Fauci, one of two things happened with Anthony Fauci yesterday. Either he lied to the United States Senate or he got so worked up, which I'm guessing, I'm, I'm actually in this case, I'm guessing it's the, one, the, the second option. Because you, you have to understand people with Napoleonic com, uh, complexes like Fauci. They're not used to getting pushed back on. Especially as aggressively as Rand pushed back on him yesterday. Um... Either he lied or the more likely option here is he just got so shook up by somebody daring to step on his toes, daring to call BS right to his face, that he just forgot, lost his place, and got shook up, got put back on his heels. I actually think that's what occurred, okay? Because I think it was back on August the 11th. Go look it up. Back on August the 11th, Anthony Fauci did an interview in which he talked, wait for it, wait for it, in which he talked about the growing likelihood of cross immunity for COVID-19 because of our past exposure to coronaviruses. The very thing he said up there yesterday and told Rand Paul he was dead wrong about, didn't know what he was talking about, way off base, Anthony Fauci addressed this over a month and a half ago. He talked about it. He's on the record talking about it. Because do you know who did one of the 24 studies? (laughs) Do you know who did one of the 24 studies that Scott Atlas quoted yesterday at the White House? And Lord, you can take me now. I'm good. I still have some answers. I, I gots to know. But I'm good. You can take me now. Somebody at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue said some of this stuff for once. I've only been waiting for six freaking months. If this had happened three or four months ago, would we be talking about coronavirus on a daily basis the way we still do now? No, 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 no. Nor would the New York Times and Siena College put out a poll with Trump at 36%. It would at least be 39. And the other troubling thing about that, it's, 
it's a hopeful message that Scott yes, Adams they don't want and to they're it. mad about yeah. it. And, they, and these are all people that live in New York, the cro- the tri- or the, that tri-state area, or D.C. The idea that it's not as bad, and they're upset about that. But one of the 24 studies, folks, <laughs> I can't wait to tell you this. I'm just going to let it linger for a minute. One of the 24 studies on cross-immunity to coronaviruses that Scott Atlas of Stanford University referenced yesterday at the White House. Do you want to know who authored one of those 24 studies? Come on. Guess. Guess. Um, the National Institute of Health, NIH. That Folks, sounds familiar. Do, do, do you guys know who runs the National Institute of Health, the NIH? Do you guys you guys know who's in charge of that us that um, August uh, institution? Do you know who runs that? Uh, Andy Falk. Oh, Ant, Ant, Anthony uh, Fauci. Yeah, his name rhymes with Fauci. Yeah, his own institute authored one of the twenty-four studies on cross immunity to COVID nineteen because of past exposure to coronaviruses. I've been telling you most of this year, the only country in the world whose CDC or their infectious disease internal experts are lying to them like this is our own. And I'll tell you the other reason that Anthony Fauci is so defensive about New York State. Where's he from? New York. You don't think he didn't have any hand in what was going on in his home state at all? You don't think he never talked to Governor Cuomo about policy or what to do at all? See, he's not defending Governor Cuomo by getting defensive about what happened in New York City. He's defending himself. More in a moment. Well, it takes a very unique talent to count among his uh, cohorts a wide range from Dr. Drew to Dennis Prager. And if you have that kind of range, that might be why you have arguably the number one podcast in the country. That individual is with us now. The one and only Adam Carolla is our guest here on the Steve Day Show on Blaze TV radio and podcast. Adam, it is an honor to have you with us, brother. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. So you've got a, a, a film that was very successful last year, uh, talking about political correctness and what it's doing, uh, really, to our culture, to our ability to communicate with one another, to our ability, frankly, just to even laugh and live together. Called No Safe Spaces. It's out on demand right now. Tell us about the film. Well, it's uh, Dennis Prager and I, and then a sort of cast of notable names from the right and from the left and from the center. Uh, It's us basically taking this notion of free speech and breaking it down from unique perspectives. Dennis comes from a very different place than I come from and, you know, vice versa, obviously. And yet we both agree on this one subject, but it's also a good film. It's an entertaining film and it has a lot of humor in it. I, I, Dennis is a funny guy who appreciates humor and I'm not going to speak for very long without saying something funny. So it's got (laughs) a lot of, it's got a lot of smiles in it. And I don't want people to think it's just a, you know, preachy 
you know, docu-snoozefest. It, it's, it's a really entertaining film. So I got to know, take us to the origin of this film. Who breaks off the phone call between Adam Carolla and Dennis Prager? I used to work with Dennis at Salem Radio, so I'm very well aware of him. So who, who, who breaks off that phone call and says, I got a great idea for a partnership for a duo? Where does that story begin? Well, Dennis and I had been friends for a while and had actually toured around the country and done some speaking engagements together. And it was always a joy to spend time with Dennis, as you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, he really enjoyed my company and I really enjoyed his company. We He's just one of my favorite guys to, you know, my you know, the thing that was funny about hanging out with Dennis is like hanging out in the green room backstage and having our conversation interrupted sometimes to have to go out on stage and have a conversation it was almost like a disappointment. Like I was so into talking to him. So when the producers came to us and said, you want to do a film together? For me, it was just an excuse to hang out with Dennis. And I think he kind of felt the same way. So we, we immediately just signed on. So you're in, you're in the, the gated community in the podcast world. I, I would live probably in the, where, where our platform is in like the upper middle class. So I don't get around as much as somebody like you. I'm not as nearly in demand as somebody like you, but I do get around. And I've never had anybody come up to me at an airport, say, hi, I'm a member of the social media mob. Hey, I'm with the cancel culture. Can I introduce myself? Who are these people? Who, who are these nameless, faceless people with all these screen names that corporate America and, and, and a lot of the, the people involved in what gets said and done in pop culture are deathly afraid of, Adam? Who are they? I think they are younger people. Sadly, it always, it always makes me sad when I see some middle-aged dude that's in this group because I'm like, these guys, you know, when you were a kid, there were there was your dad and your dad had your da- his dad friends. Mm-hmm. And you picture those guys are your dad's friends ages when you were 11. You know, and you have to be thinking to yourself, really, these guys are engaged in this nonsense. Um, these are mostly people who I realize don't have hobbies and I, I know it sounds like I'm making a joke, but I'm not really making a joke. All the guys I know who are like car guys, I'm pretty deep in the car community. The car guys don't engage in this because they have a passion, they have a love, they they, they have they have things they want to do. Uh, the guys I know who are builders, the guys who put wood together, the guys who fabricate metal, these guys, like the people that have passions and hobbies not engaged in this asinine behavior. It's the people who their hobby is either watching CNN or staring at their computer and trying to deplatform people they disagree with. They're, they're, they're essentially hobbies have become other people, not hobbies as, as we used to know it. I mean, just think about hobbies. People used to be into things. They're not into that. They're into this sort of, you know, uh, climate change but that that's not something that ever ends i mean like like i was thinking about the dynamic behind this when you're into car restoration you restore the car and then eventually you drive it to the bob's big boy and uh, order a shake if you're into climate change or social justice it never ends 
You're just frustrated your entire life. That is a fascinating observation because one of the things that I'm always curious about is what is the driving impulse of this? I mean, I understand historically that uh, movements associated with, with with fascism or Marxism, they're, they they have you know proto iterations that begin this way: the stifling of dissent, creativity, free speech, things of that nature, in order to set the stage for something. And I, I think that that's part of what's going on here, which is probably what draws somebody like a Dennis Prager or myself into the debate. But then I just think there's just frankly a lot of losers. I mean, I think there's. A lot of a lot of twenty three year old dudes who just never were in a fight. I think what the great prophet Ice T once said, which is Twitter is the place for a bunch of people to say things that they would have never said to somebody's face without getting punched in the mouth. And I think that's right. part of it. I, I think that you know a lot of people. I see what goes on with my kids and their friends and what they say to each other on their Snapchats and text messages. I mean, I, you and I are probably roughly the same age. If, if we ever got caught saying something like that about somebody else, even if we thought it, you better be prepared to throw down right now. There's going to be a fight. Someone's crying, bleeding. There was, there was a, almost like a built-in um, honor, among, uh, honor code uh, growing up. And I just think this generation just never had that with zero tolerance policies and everything else. And it's massively passive-aggressive. And it's just never really faced any kind of real confrontational um, uh, you know, accountability for being a dumbass. 100% correct. They also never learned how to lose. Now, that's not the same as getting a part- participation trophy. That is not learning how to lose. So the thing that I've realized, like when my son ran cross country when he was eight and he came in seventh place and I said, OK, it's time to go home. Uh, his mom said, no, no, now the podium ceremony. And I said, uh, the podium ceremony is only for the top three. And she said, oh, no, they're all getting out there. So what happened? Well, my son, he did, he knows he didn't win the race. He knows he didn't come second in the race. But he doesn't feel like he lost. And you and I grew up doing a lot of losing, a lot of losing. You know, high school football, I did a lot of losing. Uh, Little League baseball, I did a lot. Life to me was a lot of losing, and I learned how to deal with losing. Mm -hmm. This new group hasn't learned how to deal with losing. I mean, look at it. Look at it this way. They lost an election for a president and completely went bat crap crazy and never let it go, never accepted it. They literally just went, sorry, you lost. Literally, your guy won, and in the past, two terms, you had eight years. Now, your girl lost, and our guy won. So that's gonna be four years, and they went nuts. They just went ballistic. Like, they literally can't lose. They don't know how to lose. They can't accept it. I think I think that's a good observation as well. I've told my daughters that uh, one of the main requirements for them, if they if they want uh, their father's uh, permission or their their the the guy who wants to marry them wants my permission to do so, if you want to be old fashioned and traditional about it, one of the two requirements is um, they had to have gotten their ass kicked at least once in life, taken a punch. 
taken upon mm-hmm. either figuratively or literally not maybe not figure literally in a fight but been cut from a team lost something didn't get a job gotten fired from a job because a, a man that's never been kicked up you know put down um will be one of two things either a he'll be completely passive afraid of taking any risk because he's not sure he can take a punch fail and get back up or b and i think that's the driving impulse that you're talking about driving cancel culture it'll it'll be the exact opposite it'll be an extreme amount of arrogance um the idea that i can't ever lose i'll never lose that i'm um i'm I'm somehow entitled to not be offended uh that seems to be what you're describing here as one of the impetuses that are driving this absolutely i mean it's such an important maybe more important than winning is losing and if you don't learn if we protect or we shield basically it's like this a lot of these young people have allergies and hay fevers and you know lactose and gluten intolerant they have a lot of intolerance why because we scrubbed them down with purell and we kept them away from dirt and we weakened their immune system and that's why half these kids are allergic to peanut butter when nobody you knew growing up right. was allergic to peanut that butter. That was a food right? group when we were growing up, Adam. <laughs> right. It yeah. really was. So we essentially, by trying to protect them, denied them the ability to strengthen their immune system. Well, we've done the exact same thing with losing because we didn't want, want to make them feel bad. We decided to enact the slaughter rule in little league which is you know if the other team got up by more than eight runs uh before the seventh inning we'd call the game that doesn't do anything for anybody and also it doesn't let you build up a system like your immune system which you need to do it's important it's 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 not about everything positive there's negative you learn a lot from negativity you you learn that uh, you know if there's a flame coming out of your uh, of your cooktop and you put your hand over it, it'll burn your hand. That's what we've. That's what you learn. It's a good lesson. It may sting, but it's a good lesson. Incredible cast involved in this, and as Adam mentioned a few minutes ago, I mean, it's across the ideological spectrum, from Van Jones and Alan Dershowitz to Ben Shapiro, our colleague here at The Blaze, Dave Rubin, Jordan Peterson, uh, Tim Allen. I mean, it's it's there's an all-star cast involved in this. You want to check it out? Uh, it's going to be on my list uh, to watch here over the next few days as well. No safe spaces on demand right now. Uh, celebrating, championing free speech. Uh, defending it as well. Adam Carolla, number one podcaster in the country. Brother, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you with us. Take care, all right? Thanks for having me. You bet. Your thoughts on that conversation? Well, man, you know I love that uh, last analogy regarding uh, peanuts and you know how we... He brings up a good point. I've, I've, I've referenced it before on the show. Do you remember anybody? No. Like, I always had the Jehovah Witness kid in the class who, like, never brought birthday cupcakes on his yeah. birthday and always said everything out. We always had that kid, right? Did you ever have the peanut allergy kid? No. Never have. It was literally a food group, man. I mean, like, we, we like, injected it. We were like, it was like meth to us is what we thought peanut butter was, right? Right. If you were hungry and there was nothing at home, what'd you do? Just go home, grab a spoon, and go right into the peanut butter jar, right? Right. I never heard of a peanut butter allergy until, like, well, 15, 20 years ago. I never heard of it. Well, you get these bizarro world extremes because you don't focus, focus on the proper balance of mercy and justice, 
the and you get absurd versions of each if you just are we've talked about this it's a theological concept we're basically talking about you get absurd versions of both uh, if you don't do that so now in, in in the sports world it's great i see it all the time you get these really calloused you know 15 year old girls who don't care about anybody or other anything and they're just trying to hurt people to get to the top or you get these these passive souls who don't know how to co- compete in any way shape or form and we're talking i've got four daughters uh you, you take like you said at the beginning you take this into the man's world it, it it becomes even more absurd and he makes a great point about all these people who men who work with their hands they just don't have time for this you know the, the, there is there's a mission there is something i'm trying to do mm-hmm. there's an art to it a science to it a finesse it is the good the true and the beautiful if you don't have those in your life the god-shaped hole it's another version of that you you fill it with the obscene it will happen that is as that is the rock solid scientific truth of this age and every age you will believe in something as God, one way or the other. So it better be the real one. I mean, imagine, Aaron, your life, unless and you volunteer. It's one thing to get paid to be this kind of a troll, right? Sure. For a living. But imagine you sign up voluntarily for your life to be driven by this. I, and I don't want to imagine that because that's a that's a very bleak uh, bleak existence. It's like Harry Potter. Uh, on the floor of the Ministry of Magic, somewhat uh, fighting back possession by Voldemort. Um, you'll never know true love or friendship, and I feel sorry for you. Talking to to, to hmm. Voldemort there, that that's what it is. <laughs> it's it, it is a bleak existence. Yet, as Todd was just saying, if you do not have a purpose to your life, which there are increasing numbers of people who feel like life is purposeless, take away the the pandemic, but just naturally in an increasingly secularized world, how many times and how many clips are out there of Richard Dawkins essentially saying and overtly saying, your life is meaningless, make of it what you will. When Mm -hmm. your life is purposeless, you will be driven by and driven to anything whatsoever. And getting a rise out of people, making yourself your own god, uh, trying to formulate uh, formulate an existence and a reality out of nothing as if you are God and trying to foist that upon people, which is essentially the goal subjectively of the cancel culture, of the cancel mob, the Twitter mob, then this is what this is what happens. Cancel culture and the the Twitterati is what happens when you try, as Todd said, to fill to fill the God-shaped hole in your heart with anything other than him. Hmm. I really think, and maybe it's not nice, a lot of this would be settled and better if these these guys had to be in, in fights when they were younger. I mean, I really do. That teaches you, Adam was correct, you learn a lot from losing. Having, losing a fight, having to come back the next day in school with a black eye. I right? don't disagree. Okay, you learn mercy when, when if you're winning the fight, when to give up, when it, when it's one, and to walk away. Right? Yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of valuable lessons men, young men, can learn in those situations that we have sanitized and sterilized a generation of young men from getting to learn. Hour two is next. Back 
back with Hour 2 live and on demand here on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. Steve Dace here with Todd Erzin and Aaron McIntyre. 888-900-3393 is the number. Steve at stevedace.com is the email address. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Over on Parlor at stevedaceyoutube.com slash stevedace. That's youtube.com slash stevedace. And the last name is... D-E-A-C-E. If you're a podcast listener, thank you. We love you every bit as much as we do everybody else. We just ask in return you do two things for us if you love us. Number one, hit that subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, And we need a lot more of you to do that. We just had the number one podcaster in the country on the show, Adam Carolla, a few minutes ago. And so I've got some podcast envy right about now. So we really need you guys to be smashing that subscribe button. We've got... He's a few laps around the track ahead of us, okay? Uh, You can also leave us a five-star review if you haven't done that yet. We appreciate all of you that have uh, been kind enough to do those two things for us, however. Coming up at the bottom of the hour, three non-political questions. And Aaron says he is ready, Todd, which means we're probably only getting one uh, Mount Rushmore question this week. You only are going to have to answer one this week because he's ready. Whatever that means. Actually, I didn't have any, but now I think I might have. Now you're going to throw it in on a spike? That's a dude code move. I respect it. You respect that move, wouldn't you? Of course. In fact, you know what? It would be the dude code thing just to come back now, dump the questions you had, and then just show up in in 30 minutes with the lamest set of three Mount Rushmore questions you can come up with. But you won't do that because then there's the audience code and they won't like you, right? So you'll have good questions. And now that you've suggested that, it's I I can't do that anymore. That's true. It would have been better to blindside us. And if he would have blindsided us, I'd have respect. I, I would have actually rewarded that. Man, he's getting a lot of esteem from you today. I am. You know what? Um, Did he sh- got, I'm I'm fired up. I got fired up by the Adam Carolla interview. I got I got a little fired up by that. So, all right, let's get to theology Thursday. Brought to you by our friends over at Rough Greens. You know, people walk their dogs. That's good. Run with their dogs. That's nuts. Uh, but uh, you know, you do those things uh, because you want your dog to be happy and healthy. Here's another thing you can do to help your dog be happy and healthy as well. Your dog needs nutrients, vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, prebiotics, omega oils. The list goes on. And chances are that store-bought food they love doesn't have much of that. It's probably dead. Sterilized in order to be available for mass consumption and production. That's why we take so many supplements these days as humans. Same thing goes for our pets, our dogs. And that's why I've been telling you for a while now about Rough Greens. It's not a dog food, but it is a dog food supplement that you can put on the dog's food. And it's jam-packed with all the good stuff, likely missing from the food your dog is already eating. And your dog's going to go crazy for this stuff. Our dog, Cap, loves it. And if you want to see, if you don't see a difference in your pet in 14 days or less, get the 14-day Jumpstart Bag today for just $14.95 at Rough Greens, R-U-F-F, roughgreens.com slash blaze. Again, that is roughgreens.com slash blaze. Well, I have been getting, and we were getting these questions a lot in May when the numbers were going down as they are right now across the country, heading into June, where people were more like, hey, how much longer do I have to tolerate this crap? Okay. Went to Walmart yesterday. Still have to wear a mask, but I'll say this. Nobody out front checking for masks anymore. Saw a couple people walk in without them. Nobody said anything. Like the the directional signs of the aisles and all the social distancing stuff they had at Walmart. All that's gone. 
So maybe slowly but surely, we're getting to normalcy. I mean, those infection fatality rates from CDC that we gave you yesterday, essentially, unless if you're under 70, go live your life as you were before. And if you're around people that are over 70, take the necessary precautions and maybe even then think about a mask. I don't know. But anybody else under than 70, just back to normal life if you look at those ifr numbers that we had yesterday right yeah and so now that the numbers are down again now that we're down to one and a half percent of all er visits are for covid that's it and people want their lives back and they want their kids back in school and their sports getting back and now the and now that you're watching on tv now can you see the argument two months ago was why can't we have football and just watch without fans on tv and now the games are back people are like why, why can't we go and tailgate? You know, you know what I'm saying? People want more and more of the normalcy. And so I'm getting more and more questions about this. People want to know, when is it okay to defy? When, when must I obey? Well, a, a few months ago, I did a presentation on this very question for Theology Thursday and for a virtual conference that I was speaking at at the time. Given the amount of questions I'm getting on this topic, rather than just resetting it, I thought we would just replay this presentation because it is it's every bit applicable to what's going on right now. Stories like the one in Moscow, Idaho that we talked about at the top of the show all come back to this presentation that we're going to give you again right now. Let's begin with what Paul writes in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, Be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Given what's going on in our country these days, there's a lot of stinking thinking going on about what Paul does and doesn't mean in these words that he writes in the book of Romans. And he is uniquely qualified to address this subject in a civic manner because he was a rarity in the first century, both a Jew and a Roman citizen. I'm guessing it's a very small percentage of individuals who checked both of those boxes, both a Jew and held an esteemed company, so he could be welcomed with open arms into every synagogue within the empire, but also as a Roman citizen, he was free 
to visit all of those places. He was free to be the apostle to the Gentiles as well. A unique combination. He also had some form, albeit proto-versions of a lot of the freedoms we have, but he did have some nascent form of civil liberties as a first century Roman citizen as well. And we see in the book of Acts, for example, him invoke those civil liberties uh, in order to both defend his freedom, but also to advance the gospel. So he's uniquely qualified to address the dilemma that we as American believers face in this particular era, a post-Christian era, the first one really in American history. So let's dive into this. Let's look at what Paul does and doesn't say in these verses, one by one, beginning with this first and most important point. Romans 13 does not mean do everything government tells you. And you know this by looking at how Paul himself lived out his own teaching and what happened to him as a result. When trying to explain the principle of headship in the home to my own daughters, I explained it to them this way. If I asked mom to join me in a drug dealing business, should she do it? I am the head of the home. Should she submit to me and join me in Breaking Bad? And the girls, when they were small, would kind of chuckle and say, no, that's 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 dumb, dad. That's silly. Well, you need sometimes to illustrate absurdity by pointing out the absurd, right? And, and that means there's a chain of command. That I might be the authority in the home as the husband and the father, but I am not the ultimate authority. There is a higher authority. And that higher authority says, don't be a drug dealer, all right? So should my wife submit to me if I ask her to do something that violates God's command? Or should she submit to God? The answer, of course, is the latter. The same thing applies here. And you can tell that that's what Paul means by the way he lives this out himself. I know we live in this era of reconstructionism and reductionism. And we live in this era of Bible studies where we ask each other banal questions like, well, what does that verse mean to you? Nothing. No one should care what it means to me. I I didn't write it. They should only care what it means. (laughs) All right. So, So Paul gets to determine the context here. He's its author, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what do we know from tradition about the end of Paul's life? Nero decapitated him. Why did he do that? Probably because Paul wasn't willing to do everything Nero, who was a notoriously vile, cruel, inhumane Caesar. Probably because Paul was not willing to do absolutely everything that Nero commanded. If he were, then there was no reason to execute to martyr Paul. So you know from Paul's own life, the times he was in chains, the times he was imprisoned, the times he was accused, sometimes falsely, the times that he was ultimately executed. You know from his own life that he didn't mean here, do whatever government tells you to do, no matter how damnable and dumb. That brings us to our second point we want to look at here about Romans 13. Romans 13 is is therefore a civic application of a universal biblical truth slash creed that is stated repeatedly throughout the scriptures. We are to obey God and not man. To render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and to render under God that which is God's. Paul even closes with his own variation of this at the end of the scriptures we looked at in verse 8. 
Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Do not give a civic ruler respect and honor that goes to God alone. Do not put cultural custom above Christian doctrine and say, well, I'm just following Romans 13. No, you've actually bastardized Romans 13. You're following the world, not the way. No, we are to obey God and not man. This is repeated constantly and consistently throughout the scriptures. We are not to win in Rome, do as the Romans. We're to be a holy, peculiar, set-apart people. There's to be something distinct and different about us. And one of the main things that should be different about us is we live in this life as if we are citizens of another kingdom. Point three, in our six things every believer needs to know about Romans 13 and what Romans 13 does and doesn't say. The purpose of government is to punish evil in order to protect the righteous. Paul writes, the state The government is to be an avenger. Another translation says an avenging angel. He does not brandish the sword in vain, meaning it's not to be wasted. He is to wield it. It's there for a purpose. And that purpose is to punish evil in order to protect the righteous. That's why Paul says, don't run afoul of the law. If you can avoid it, of course. Sometimes you can't because the law itself is immoral. But when the law isn't immoral, don't be immoral in violating the law. Otherwise, that sword will be brandished against you. Even as a believer, you will not be immune from that justice. When you break the natural law, it breaks you. And that is the role of government. It is not here to play referee. It is not here to determine what is fair. It's not here to determine what is right or wrong, but to enforce that which was right and wrong predetermined before it. That is the role of government. And by doing so, by punishing criminals rather than letting them go because they might have coronavirus to go who knows where, that's not government's role. Government's role is to protect you from those criminals, not release them into the gen pop. Number four, government is every bit as accountable to God as the governed. Since it's instituted by God, appointed by God, permitted by God, therefore it is accountable to God. God is no respecter of persons, the scripture says. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He, she, they, every bit is accountable to God as are you. There is no divine right of kings or special dispensation for people whose opening line when they meet you is, I'm from the government, I'm here to help. Quite the opposite. History is replete with examples that the same total depravity that threatens each and every one of we mere mortals is especially temptable to those with all of that power and access to other people's money. No, government is every bit as accountable to God as are the governed. Point five. In our country, we the people formed the union and the constitution that guides and governs us. And our politicians are public servants who only govern by our consent. So we are not to submit to them 
as much as they are to submit to us. Therefore, in the case of these United States, we the people are the instituted authority that God has appointed. This is one of the major sticking points I see a lot of American believers and pastors get wrong. Well, I have to shut down my church because blank, because government told me to. Well, I have to bake the cake blank because government told me to. Wrong. You are the authority, as am I. We the people, we are the authority. It has derived its powers from us. God has permitted this unique structure that we call Republican form of government or democracy. We, the people, formed the union. We, the people, ratified the Constitution. We, the people, go to vote. Remember I said earlier, Paul had sort of proto-versions of the civil liberties we have today. Well, what Paul did not have was a representative form of government. That's what we get to have. We elect proxies. They are to govern on our behalf. We have referendums on their success or lack thereof. These are called elections. We get to remove them, sometimes even sooner. Sometimes for a criminal action or an impeachment or a recall of some kind. No, all of the ultimate accountability in our system resides with the people. Not with the politicians. We don't submit to them. They submit to us. This is not a king-servant relationship, a king-subject relationship. This is a citizen-public-servant relationship. And that, when you get, when you understand that, you learn two things. Number one, why this country has been a huge promoter of religious freedom, both within its borders and across the globe until recent times. And that has been to the benefit of the Christian church because it recognized that government is not God. God is God. But then two, you recognize why we've lost so much of our freedom and liberty and our religious freedom is so imperiled right now as well because we have given up the premise of our government. We've abrogated our authority. We've done what is wise in our own eyes as opposed to letting our yes be our yes and our no be our no and keeping our vow and saying, hey, we're serious about this responsibility serious enough to hold politicians who violate their oaths of office to hold them accountable. And yet in this country, over 90% of incumbents get reelected in every election. So the same people that like to complain all the time about corruption in politics will often then just turn around and vote for the same people they were just complaining about. That is not the fault of the political process. God says to the prophet Ezekiel, hey, when the people sin, They're guilty of their own sin, but you that were appointed watchmen on the wall, you're you're guilty too. You didn't warn them. You didn't impart to them what I told you to say. You didn't hold them accountable. Well, in our country, we, we are those watchmen on the wall. The final point to make about Romans 13. As we enter into America's first post-Christian generation, every believer needs to be prepared to tell government no. You will not stand down on the gospel to appease your cultural customs or your authoritarian decrees, just as Paul did. Some of you may be unsure, boy, could I, could I really say no 
when they tell me I have to teach my kids that Heather has two mommies, that there's such a thing as 57 genders. Some of you may not be sure, boy, when they, when they show up at my bakery, can I resist or my floral shop? Well, I bring you glad tidings of great joy to close out our conversation here today. If you as a believer are unsure of whether or not you have the courage of conviction to say to government at some point when it wants to violate your conscience and get you to do that which God says is wrong, if you're unsure whether you can tell government no or not, the good news for you today is you're going to find out. Because in the post-Christian generation in which we live, straddling the fence will not be tolerated. You will be made to care. You will give a yes or you will give a no. You will, each and every one of us in this era in which we live, the system will demand that we choose ye this day. And so does God. Get you guys' thoughts here on that in a moment. Uh, But hey, trying to sell your home in any environment, any economic uh, condition is difficult, stressful, especially the unprecedented times. Got it in. Uh, especially the unprecedented times in which we live right now. That's why if you're going in to this real estate mar- market, make sure you're going uh, with an agent who's all in for you. Now, where would you find an agent? It's not like when you go to their websites, it says, I'm kind of in, part of the way in. I'm in until I'm. it gets hard. Uh, they don't just put that stuff on their site. It'd be kind of cool if they did. But they don't. So you want to find an agent that, uh, that's been fully vetted. And the name kind of says it all, uh, where you can find that kind of an agent. Realestateagentsitrust.com is the website. No one gets listed there anywhere in the country that has not been fully vetted and uh, has a, a transparent track record of success. So that's where you want to go to partner with the right agent who recognizes that they work for you. Realestateagentsitrust.com. Again, that's realestateagentsitrust.com. Looking back at that presentation from several months ago, I don't know what you guys think, but I think point five is the one that stands out the most to me because I think this is gets misconstrued. Now let's go back again to that video from our friends in Moscow, Idaho. The mayor doesn't, they don't work for the mayor of Moscow, Idaho. The mayor works for them. They don't work for the police of Moscow, Idaho. The police work for them. I mean, we the people, we're the government here. We are. That's why we can't sustain this without a moral and religious people. Because... (laughs) If you somehow got a president, a president like King Josiah elected in this country, how much of this country would be an open revolt against something like that? A lot of it would be. A lot of it would be. I mean, we don't have somebody who's president right now that necessarily has the character of King Josiah, but he is viewed by some of these same elements as a threat to their power. And look at the way they've acted towards him the last few years, right? Right. So that's why it's hard to maintain self-government if ourselves are corrupted and irredeemably so. Um, but ultimately, we're the power. We are the power. These government entities submit to us. 
we vote them into office. We are the ones that provide the consent. In any relationship, does the power lie with the person who, ha- who is reliant upon for consent or the one that is waiting upon the consent? Where does the power lie? It's the one who gives consent. That's exactly right. That's where the power lies. See, ladies, you've had the power all along. Don't let our fake muscles fool you. <laughs> right? you got, but you guys have had the power here all along. All right? it, it's, it's the person who gives consent, whose consent is required. That's where the power is. There is not a single police officer in America, not a single governor, mayor, legislator, governor, period, without our consent. We're the power. So this idea that we just do whatever they tell us to do because they won the election, no, no, that's, that's not how it works. That's not how any of this works, in fact. No, they do, it, it's the other way around. Because they won the election, they do what we told them to do. It's the other way around. Other way around. So in this country, it's not about to what extent do we go to submit to them. It's about why do we put up with it when they don't submit to us? Now, gentlemen, your thoughts. Well, you're, of course, talking about uh, the proper order of things. This is uh, throughout the Bible. I did, Lord, I did this and this and this in your name. And I said, no, I hardly knew you. This is uh, Sabbath was not made for man. Uh, 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 the Sabbath, uh, man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. Uh, the Steve regularly talks about motivation, and that's at the heart of all of these uh, issues right here. Following these laws and the motivation to do so, and, and for anybody who's now an adult Christian to still be confused about this, this is ultimately where your confusion is. It's, it's about your motivation. You, your motivation, unfortunately, when it comes down to these rubber meets the road issues are not about serving the Lord. They're just about serving you. I, I say that not, not callously because I know it's hard. There, there, there's no way you're not going to have a rumble in the tummy when it comes down to put all your cards on the table. But it's what we're called to do nonetheless. That's not ambiguous. We act like it is. We keep coming back to the Steve Day show and asking, Steve, can you talk me through? It's not ambiguous. The only thing that's ambiguous is your true and total commitment to the Lord you claim you serve. Again, I do not say that cavalierly. I have to do the same thing every day, morning, noon, and night. Call myself to account in that way. But that's it. That's the game. And you chose it. You weren't dragooned to in that. You chose it, unlike the way you're being dragooned into mask nonsense in Moscow, Idaho. Just choose this day whom ye will serve. Just make it clear. And then the rest of this goes away. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Point five is, is where we get off, uh, off on the wrong foot, I think, a lot of the times when applying Romans 13 to our current situation. Speaking of removing ambiguity, the ambiguity comes into, well, to what point do we obey the governor? What point do we obey the judge? Well, no. To what point do we obey them? Um, 
Well, as, as long as you're not sinning, uh, it's often, well, they're not asking you to, they're not asking you to sin. Well, if they're in the case of the mask and there's not a good, if it's a matter of conscience, let's just stipulate to that. If it's a matter of conscience and they're telling you wearing this, you must wear this because wearing this will stop the spread of the virus. That's not telling you to sin or not embracing a lie. Is that not a sin as well? I'm not saying if you wear a mask that you are sinning necessarily, but if you assent to that because it's the government, because they are the authority, then it's still a matter of conscience. That's, that's what I'm talking about here. And amongst Christians, and with increasing frequency, especially with this issue and, and the virus in general, there are, if, if you want to be more cautious, that's okay, but don't, don't then pass judgment on others who believe and who want to live their lives uh, the way that they were the, the way that they were or something similar to that similarly i don't think you're a terrible person either if making a mask or wearing a mask makes you feel better but but let's not lie to each other either because oftentimes we make matters of conscience we turn them into morals one way or the other we're putting our faith in whatever's being stipulated as being this is the panacea or this is uh, something else. Don't embrace the lie. Follow, follow your conscience as much as you can and give a lot of grace to others. Well said. We'll come back in a moment. Play three non-political questions next year on Blaze TV radio and podcast. Stay tuned. You know, the average American has almost 100 points, 97, that they can add to their credit score and often has no idea how to get to those. Well, that's where ScoreMaster comes in. It's the new credit science that super boosts your credit score. Forget raising your score by just a few points. Uh, The average ScoreMaster user can raise their score 61 points in 20 days or less. 61. Now, how? Because they make the information accessible to you. They let you see in real time what is really, truly driving your score as it is right now, and then what you can do to improve that score and how long it will take. This is empowering information that typically the banks, the credit lenders, they had, but you did not. But now, ScoreMaster has put the power where you where it belongs in your hands. And if you want to see in just minutes how many plus points you can add to your credit score, which could change uh, how much it costs to get a home, a car, uh, maybe new capital for your business, uh, you can enroll in minutes right now. Go to scoremaster.com slash Steve. Again, go to scoremaster.com slash Steve. That's scoremaster dot com slash steve it's now time for three non-political questions we all have questions who am i why am i here where am i going who am i a search and a question of identity why am i here a question of meaning and purpose where am i going question of destiny some better than others what sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop injecting some levity into the demise of western civilization it's three questions on the steve day show yes three non-political hopefully good questions but probably not 
But probably, actually. <laughs> questions, all the questions that I ask are uh, amazing, pro- thought-provoking. You've never seen questions like this before. You're going to get tired of all the good questions. Require um, large amounts of, of thinking and deep thought and introspection. Anyway, uh, question number one. What would be your dying wish? And this is a two-part question as well. What would be your dying wish? And what do you think if your significant other or wife was asked what your dying wish is, what would they say? Good grief. Can you just do it? Wow. Um, Mount Rushmore of nonsense. And that just came out off the top rope, man. This got deeply existential here yes. right off the get-go. Yeah, you know Okay. Um, my dying wish would be that my children know the Lord and make different mistakes than I made. Learn from my mistakes. Make your own mistakes. It has nothing to do with the Supreme Court? No. I've told them this their whole lives. Learn from the mistakes your mom and I tell you about. And then as you get older, we'll tell you about more of them. We don't want you to know about when you're young. All right. Um, and learn from the mistakes you see us make in the home as you're growing up. And then when you grow up and you get out of here, make your own mistakes. Learn from our mistakes. Make all new ones. Don't repeat our mistakes. So I think that would be my dying wish. And I think Amy would probably give an answer. I mean, she'd throw in something snarky like the Detroit Lions finally win the Super Bowl or something. But uh, but ultimately, I think she'd give an answer. Uh, predicting my answer would be very similar to what I just told you. Uh, I, I do think some version. I think my wife would come close to what I'd say. And it would have something to do with my children uh, when I sporting events things like that not not every single time but the, when there's one when they're a little bit more nervous um uh you know the one thing i make sure that they hear co- constantly it never goes away is uh just take god with you you know the small things the big things uh just ne- don't keep him on a shelf for any reason your relationships your concerns your joys just take god with you Wow. Um, my dying wish, <clears throat> excuse me, my dying wish would be something very similar to that, uh, mainly because uh, I was hoping this question would be a little bit more, um, uh, I would have a little bit more levity. So I, I feel really, really bad uh, saying anything other than that now. Um, uh, now, I think what my wife would say is probably jokingly, of course, uh, to be buried with Allison's uh, baked potato salad. Uh, question number two. This was actually submitted right before the start of the show by someone who was trying to help out, just in case I forgot to prepare three questions again uh, from G Chums. <laughs> I actually substituted one of the questions that he uh, submitted funny. with uh, one question that I came up with because my question was terrible. Uh, top four baseball players you wish you could have watched in person? Uh, Babe Ruth would be number one. Force of nature. Um, Michael Jordan of, of his era. Uh, Babe Ruth would be number one. Um, I mean, I, he was one of my favorite players growing up. So in person, like in the stands? Yep. Okay. Uh, I loved him growing up. I never saw him pitch a game. Um, but Nolan Ryan would be on the list. And I'd love to sit behind home plate and just 
watch that ball and just see how it pops, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I, to experience that as close to the action as I possibly could. Um, Jackie Robinson would be on the list, but probably he'd be number two on the list. Babe would be number one. Jackie Robinson would be number two. Um, I'd have Nolan Ryan on the list, and then I have one more top four. Yep. This is always the really, really hard one. Ty Cobb. Was he really that much of a douche? I I I I got to know. Was he really, especially in an era of no political correctness? Uh, racism was much more rampant and acceptable. You know what I'm saying? And even think about that. And even in that era, people thought, hey, we can't stand Ty Cobb. Uh, <laughs> right? I, and you just saw it recently. I love that line from Field of Dreams. We thought about asking Ty Cobb to yeah. come along, but then we realized none of us could stand him in real life. So we told him to stick it. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, let's see for, oh, Todd, yeah. you're up next. Well, Steve's first two are my uh, first two. Then I would add Johnny Bench. Oh, the baseball bunch. Did you watch that growing up every Saturday morning, brother? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. And he was just, I, I just saw a stat from him. He hit three homes home runs in a game against Steve Carlton twice. Wow. Some people think he's the best left-handed pitcher of all time, or he's on the list. Yeah, anyway. right. Yeah. Johnny Bench could just rake. You uh, had the baseball bunch, then you had this week in baseball with Mel Allen, the Twib Notes, and then you went right into the NBC game of the week. That's back the other the thing. Day. Recently, I heard um, this week in baseball the theme. Do you remember that? I do. Dun, 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 dun. Yep. Oh my goodness! I, I'll, yep. I'll fight anybody if I hear that I music. Know. You know, the only, only now it doesn't come close. Nothing comes close to the CBS college football intro that music dude just makes the hair on the back i mean that makes the hair in the back of your neck stand up but this week with baseball that was pretty dope back in the day yeah absolutely was, and i need a fourth and i should have a pitcher i think sandy koufax that's another good i mean that's another guy people think could be the greatest left-handed pitcher of all time so mm-hmm. yeah okay um, for me, I mean, I haven't been to very These are going to be all people that we all watched and stuff growing up. You realize that, right, Todd? That oh, yes. I've, uh, I've, I've gone to like two baseball games in my life. Uh, a major league game like Chipper in Jones. My life. Um, <laughs> Albert Pujols See? is one of them. See? Who's still um, playing, by the way. Yes. Billy, Billy Sunday. I, I would like to see if, if he was actually as good at baseball as what my homeschool curriculum made it sound like. God. Um, wow. Wow. Jackie Robinson would be probably one as there you well. Go. Yeah. <laughs> um, and who else? I, I don't, I don't know. I, I guess uh, maybe Barry Bonds just see in his prime, just seeing him Jack. One. So, so pre roids or post roids in, in roids in roids. Yeah. yeah. I hear you. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, question number three, which I can't even remember until I bring it up. Uh, what's the best prank you've ever pulled on somebody? And what's the best prank that's ever been pulled on you? Uh, I have, I think we'll shock no one. I have pulled a lot of pranks. A lot of stunts in my day. Um, God rest his soul. My, The high school I went to in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which doesn't exist anymore. We had 
I mean, I, I could... Is that because of a prank you pulled? <laughs> no. I mean, I, I, I could do a whole show on stunts and pranks, and many of them you guys would be appalled by, but... Because uh, um, we didn't care about political correctness, and um, the crueler, the better, uh, like what Adam Carolla was talking about earlier. Um, we had a... My senior year, the government teacher at Rogers High School, uh, which doesn't exist anymore in Grand Rapids, uh, and and it was kind of a tradition to take his class for government. And his name was Al Pugno. Mr. Pugno was his name. And, you know, when you were an underclassman and somebody would come to the door of his class and you'd be down the hall and the door would open and you'd hear the, the kids all scream, the seniors all scream, door. And you're like, what is going on in this class? Okay. And it was just, he had a fun class, a government class. We did a lot of debate and stuff. So obviously it's in my wheelhouse already. But it was just an environment where um, <laughs> chicanery was just assumed as part of his class, right? Well, you guys know I went in there my senior year on a mission that I had to, I had to top them all, okay? And I mean, by the end of the school year, he looked at me, Dates, I'm going to give you like a chapter in my book. He had like this New England accent, which he wasn't from New England, if I remember right. He just loved John F. Kennedy so much that he taught himself how to talk like him. Okay. Um, Yours is the worst New England accent yeah, I've I know, ever that heard. That was a terrible New England accent, I know. Um, but uh, uh, chowda, is that better for you? That's good. Okay. Um, and so, you know, we did the whole door thing. Uh, one, one day in class, I brought a whole bag of Super Bowls. And so when he turned around to write stuff on the, everybody in the class had one. When he turned around to write stuff on the board, we were just all launching these super balls all over the class. They're bouncing all over the class all the time. I'd sit by the window and I'd act like I was having a conversation by somebody with somebody by the window. Nobody was there when he was in the middle of a lecture. He was deaf in one ear. And um, I, you know, when he used to take attendance, used to see if you can get him to say stuff like IP freely or, and stuff like that. And, and it, it's, cause if you couldn't hear it, you just like I, IP freely, what? You know, just say it out loud, stuff like that. Okay. Um, remember the Georgetown chant back in the day when they had Patrick Union, those guys. Sure. So I like when he would give like a lecture and the whole, like half the class would be asleep and not paying attention. I'd stand up. Ladies and gentlemen, that was phenomenal. Al phenomenal. Al Pugno. And, and we would do the Pugno chant. It was the Georgetown chant, okay? The tradition was you would steal his uh, podium every year, and we stole his podium. He was a Michigan State grad. We stole his podium and took it over to Tom Neese's house in the basement and painted the whole thing maize and blue. We did all that kind of stuff, but what what it... Um, one night, we one night we, or we used to just go to his house at night and play basketball with, when he wasn't there. We just played with his basketball hoop in his drive. When he'd come home, we were all just sitting there, you know, at 10 o'clock at night in his driveway. I used to call him up and do like really bad Chinese restaurant in person. He'd try to oh, 15 egg roll with chicken and pork and he'd get all mad. And we, we did this kind of stuff to him constantly. Okay. And I mean, I spent my entire senior year. All right. <laughs> I mean... One, one day in the hallway, I walked up to him and slapped him right on the ass in front of all the his teachers. That was a phenomenal, phenomenal lecture today, Al. I'm really fired up, okay? Okay. But the best, the best we did was me and a guy named Jeff Edgerly ended up, we, he was showing us the miniseries on, on um, 
Oh, the uh, first black Supreme Court justice, uh, Sidney Poitier played him on TV, uh, Thurgood Marshall, okay? And he's showing us the TV miniseries they had just done on Thurgood Marshall at the time. And me and the kid in the class, Jeff Edgerly, took the remote to the VCR. All right, and I said to Jeff, now, you got the remote. Hold it under the table, he won't see it, under, under your desk. When I give a voice command, like in Star Trek, push that button, okay? So we're 10, 15 minutes in the movie, class is totally quiet, it's dark out. All of a sudden I say, rewind! Jeff pushes the rewind button and the tape starts rewinding. Stop! It stops. <laughs> I tell my kids every few months, my kids, dude, dad, tell us that story about that time you convinced your teacher that PCR was voice commanded. They want to hear this story all the time. All right. <laughs> he, Al jumps up after this goes on four or five times and runs over to the TV, looks at me, looks at the TV. And he's like, is this how it works? All right. And and so he goes down to the library. Our librarian, I don't remember her name. She was mean, man. We called her Nurse Ratchet because she was mean. She comes storming down the hallway. All right. And she walks in and says, all right, who took the remote? Give it to me. <laughs> we own up to it. Give her, give her the remote. She turns around. Al, come on. And walks out. <laughs> Ah, it's one of my favorite memories of my childhood, of which there are many, many, many pranks that were pulled on me, or I pulled on others. You yes. deserved many, many beatings. Yes. Yeah. I know. You're lucky Jesus got a hold of you. I know. <laughs> Some other people are probably pretty lucky, too, I would imagine. Yeah. So. <laughs> got anything, Todd? I don't know. You asked him for what He said, let me tell you about my 20. <laughs> wow. Um... My favorite, it, I didn't do, I don't, I don't remember ever being involved. Not, this isn't a Jesus juke. Uh, I'm, I, I'm clearly the opposite. <laughs> didn't, but a guy a year older than me, his name, he's a white guy as white as there is, and his name was Michael Jackson. And so a sub came in one day and he said, what's your, uh, doing roll, uh, uh, somehow roll call. Said, what's your name? Bruce Springsteen. No, no, no. What's your name? He said, <laughs> Michael Jackson. He said, get out of here. <laughs> That's good. I like it. Um, good. I like the Walmart story that I keep uh, that I keep telling people. Yeah, you fooled uh, me on that actually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I probably the best like active prank, non-oral prank um, back in college. It was the first day of a semester, and I worked at the radio station. I can tell this now because I don't really have fear of retribution at the at the time. I had roof access to this radio station, and my, one of my coworkers, who was also a college student, did as well. And uh, students were back in, in, in class uh, for the semester, and uh, a couple were getting a little bit, uh, I, I don't know, there's a little bit of frivolity going on uh, beneath us. Uh, so we got up on the roof with a bucket of water and dumped it on this couple. <gasps> nice. <laughs> nice. I like that. I like it a lot. Turns out the dude was like really nice, like a really nice guy, and I didn't know that. All right, that's going to do it for today. We're going to stick around and do the overtime for subscribers for the rest of you. John 317. This is Steve Dace on the Blaze Radio Network.